Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here by your grace. I pray for your people. I pray for myself. I pray that the words that go forth will penetrate the hearts of your people, that what we talk about tonight will enlighten them, will cause them to worship you and to love you and adore you and to obey you even more. Lord, the doctrine that we're going to be speaking about tonight has been touched on many times in, and is a doctrine that many of your people have heard, but I pray that this this evening, that everything will become new to them. That when they leave, they will have a greater, grander vision of your love. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> the famous philosopher, Alfalfa, once said, She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. And how often how have you probably in your room, uh, when nobody was watching, have said those very words? Love is one of the weirdest attributes that is attributed to us. And those who are loving, those who have this attribute, can attest to the strange attribute that love is. And indeed, love is extremely strange. I mean, we can't even define what love is because it means so many different things to so many different people. The ancient Greeks called love the madness of the gods, little g, gods. Modern psychologists define it as a strong desire for emotional union with someone. Love is complex, is it not? Love can make someone feel like they're on the top of the world. And love can also make someone want to kill themselves. Love can bring you up, but as fast as love can bring you up, it can bring you back down to reality. Love can make you do extremely dumb things. Love can also make you say extremely dumb things. Movies are made about love every single day. Books are written about love every single year. Many in this world are looking for love. And websites like eHarmony and Match.com have been created for these people so they can find union with someone, someone whom they can care for and love. And while there are many in this world who are looking for love, there are also many in this world who have, who have experienced the pains and, and the heartbreaks of what love can bring to someone. So those people tend to shy away and run away from love. This evening, as we continue to examine the doctrine of God, I want us to consider the one attribute of God that every Christian loves to talk about, no pun intended. And that attribute is the love of of God. The love of God is indeed the most, the most uh, interesting, the most talked about attribute when it comes to the doctrine of God. And the reason is because it's easy to explain. The reason is because it makes us feel good. The reason is because there's so many verses in the Bible that speak about this overwhelming love of God. Augustine said, God's love is incomprehensible and unchangeable. Gerhardus Voss said, the best proof that he, God, will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. What we are for him and what he is for us belongs to the realm of eternal values. Without this, we are nothing, but in it we have everything. John Owen said, The love of the Father is the same for all whom he has chosen to love. Whom God loves, he loves to the very end, and he loves them all alike. On whom he sets his love, it is set forever. God's love does not grow to eternity or lessen in time. God's love is eternal love that had no beginning and, have, and shall have no end. It is a love that cannot be increased by anything that we do. 
and cannot be lessened by anything in us. Praise God. Our confession of faith describes God as most loving. And that's how we are to think about the love of God. A love that is incomprehensible. A love that is unchanging. A love that doesn't grow into eternity and doesn't lessen in time. A love that cannot be heightened or diminished by anything that we do. The love of God should be spoken about in this way. But oftentimes when people speak about the love of God, many love this, or many tend to speak about the love of God in ways that are likened to how we love. So when they think about the love of God, the love of God is just like ours, just a little bit better. It's just a little bit elevated. But rather, the love of God, and if we are to say is anything like ours, it's, it's our love with all the impurities, with all the sinfulness scrubbed away. And what you find is a love that's incomprehensible, a love that is unchanging, a love that is simple, and a love that is eternal. The love of God is perfect and is completely unlike ours. And this evening, I want us to consider the great gulf that exists between the attribute of love that we have as creatures and the attribute of love that God has as creator. I want to create that, and I want you to see that, that great gulf that exists in the love of God, where God's love is here, and our love, and the way we love, is nowhere to be found. And I want to do that in two points. The first is, how is God's love different from ours? And the second, how do we live in light of God's love? So, how is God's love different from ours? And the second, how do we live in light of God's love? So let's look at the first point. How is God's love different from ours? What makes God's love distinct from ours? If we, can, if we say that God's love is nothing like ours, then in what way is his love not like ours? Now, in this point, I want to point out four ways in which God's love is different than ours. And in doing so, in pointing out these four ways, we'll, we'll develop a biblical, orthodox, proper, biblical doctrine of God's love. And most of what I'm going to say tonight is things that you've already heard before in, in past weeks. So um, many of this will be a reminder to you. Um, but you're going to see how everything that we've talked about concerning the doctrine of God, you know, those hard things that we talked about early on, you're going to see how those things play a vital role in the doctrine of God's love. And, you'll, and hopefully you'll see that tonight. So let's first view God's love as incomprehensible. God's love is incomprehensible. That's the first point. God's love is incomprehensible. And saints, that's how we are to approach the doctrine of the love of God. That's when we speak about the doctrine of the love of God or when we speak about anything concerning God, we must first start with mystery. We must first start with incomprehensibility. Incomprehensibility and mystery is not the thing that we talk about when we run out of things to say. Incomprehensibility and mystery are not the things we talk about at the very end of our doctrine. But incomprehensibility and mystery are the very first things that we have to address. And it runs through whatever doctrine we're speaking of. So we must speak, we must deal with the incomprehensibility of God's love. Herman Bobbing said, mystery is the lifeblood of all dogmatics. And the, one of the first steps in doing theology is understanding that you don't comprehend that is step one in doing theology, specifically talking about God. You have to say to yourself that I am never, ever going to comprehend this being. That there is a beyondness to the depths of who God is. That whatever we say about God, we must always come back to this essential truth. That God is always deeper than our deepest thought of him. And that truth couldn't be more evident 
than we, when we consider the doctrine of the love of God. In fact, the doctrine of the love of God screams incomprehensibility. If you remember, the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility says that we apprehend who God is, right? But we don't comprehend who God is. So we can grasp who God is, but we can't fully touch who God is. Does that make sense? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't know anything about God. Because God has revealed himself to us. He has condescended to us, into our language, into our logic, and how we think to reveal himself to us. So it doesn't mean that we don't know anything about God. But what we are saying is in our knowing, we can't fully wrap our minds around actually what we know. That there is a beyondness even to our words and our thoughts. That God is always beyond our depths. That God is always greater than our greatest thought of him. God is always greater than our greatest thought of him. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 and 19, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the greatness of God's love, he says this, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So here Paul's prayer to these Ephesian Christians is that they'll be rooted and grounded in love, that they may have strength, strength by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by their own strength, right? but by the power of the Holy Spirit to comprehend with all the saints how wide and how long and how deep God's love is. But it's interesting. He, he says, I'm praying that you comprehend this. But in the very next sentence, he says that you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I'm praying that you understand how wide and how long and how deep this love is. But yet Paul realizes that they'll never be able to fully understand. And that's the word key word, fully understand the great love of our God that surpasses knowledge. Paul knows that we can't put a limit to God's love. Paul knows that we can't sum up God's love in a statement, even saying things like God is love. We can't fully comprehend something like that. And I'll touch on that verse in a little bit. But we cannot comprehend. We cannot fully grasp and wrap our minds around the love of God. We can't fathom the deep waters of God's love. If you remember, when you fathom something, you drop your anchor over the boat, right? And then the anchor, it drops down until it hits the bottom of the sea. And when it hits the bottom of the sea, you measure it. And at once you have fathomed the waters. You know the distance from the bottom of the sea to the boat. Saints, when we drop our anchor into the deep seas of the love of God, our anchor will never hit rock bottom. Our anchor will never touch the ground because it's too deep. It's too vast. It's too wide. It's too long. God's love surpasses human intellect. God's love surpasses human words. As Paul says, it's too wide, it's too deep, it's too long, it's too wide. God's love is infinite. God's love is holy. God's love is unchanging. God loves not because he needs love in return, like a, like a give and take thing, like a give and take relationship. And the fact that God would choose to set that perfect, incomprehensible, unchanging, infinite, eternal love on anyone is mystery. That's where the mystery of God's love really lies, is the fact that this creator would choose to love a sinful creature. That's indeed mysterious to me, and that's incomprehensible. I can apprehend it by God's word, but I can't fully comprehend all of it. Saints, this is the first aspect of God's love that we 
we have to start with, that God's love is incomprehensible. So let's move on. Secondly, God's love is independent. God's love is independent. The independency of God or the self-sufficiency of God or the aseity of God. And, and when you hear independence, when you hear aseity, when you hear self-sufficiency, they all mean the same thing. Means that God is in need of nothing or no one. The independency of God means that God is in need of nothing or no one. More specifically, the doctrine of the aseity of God says that God does not derive his life from anything or anyone. God does not derive his life from anything or anyone. He is dependent upon nothing and no one for his existence. In other words, God is self-sufficient. God is an independent in his being. Our confession says in chapter 2, paragraph 3, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself. All life, all glory, all goodness, all blessedness, in and of himself. He doesn't receive glory. He doesn't receive goodness, blessedness. He already has them in and of himself. Is alone in, unto himself, all sufficient. And hear what our confession says here. Not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. God doesn't need you to love him. God loves God perfectly. Nor deriving any glory from them. God doesn't need us to love him. But this is the greatness of, of creation. That God would choose to create. And he would create creatures so they can experience what true love is. The love that he has within his triune self. Acts 17, 24 and 25. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Why does God not live in temples made by man? Because that would mean that God would be dependent upon man to create a temple for him. God doesn't need temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Why can't God be served by human hands? Because that must mean that he will be dependent upon human hands to be served. Nor is he in need of anything. Since he, gives, since he himself gives to all mankind, all mankind, life, breath, and everything. I love when Paul says, he gives to all mankind, life, breath, everything. He gives to mankind everything. God is in need of no one for life. No one gives to God his being. We depend on God for our being. We depend on God for our life, right? God is independent. He is all say. He is of himself. Not that God is self-created. Not that God is self-caused because God is eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. God has always been. I hope you've been catching that as we're going through Genesis. In the beginning, God case closed. No explanation. God has always been. Isaiah 40, 14, whom did he consult and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? God's knowledge is all say. It's of himself. God doesn't receive knowledge from us. His knowledge is independent. And saints, as Spurgeon says, if we live in sympathy with God, we delight in these type of statements. We want a God who's independent. We want a God who is incomprehensible. We don't want a God who's like us. So you might ask at this point, what is God's dependency or independency? What does his self-sufficiency, what does that have to do with his love? I don't see a connection there. Our answer, Hosea 14.4. God says to wicked Israel after, after their apostasy, hear the words, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will love them freely. He's telling this after Israel has just committed apostasy. Friends, here's where we can see that creator-creature distinction in regards to the attribute of God's love, that God's love is independent that God loves freely. Raise your hand if you love freely. Moses, stop. 
nobody in here loves freely. You don't even love your mom freely. You're dependent upon something that your mom does in order for you to love her. For those who are married in here and those are maybe you're in a current relationship, you got a boo, whatever you, you know, whatever you're doing. Um, you don't love your counterpart freely. You've got, you've got your godly counterpart freely. You were wooed to love. You were compelled to love. In other words, you cannot not love your godly counterpart. For your love for your mate is not free, but it's dependent upon your mate. Let me give you an example. When you first started talking to your husband, you didn't instantly love them out of the goodness out of your heart, right? But rather, you were dependent upon something that your husband had. So maybe you liked the way he smiled. Maybe you liked the way he dressed. Maybe you liked the hat he was wearing. Maybe you liked his hair. Maybe you liked the way he, you know, he just did his thing. Maybe you liked all of that. If we put, if we take all of those things, all of those things that are, that attribute to that person, then we can say that you weren't depend, you were dependent upon hair, smile, body type, clothes, language. You were dependent upon those things to love that person. But you didn't love them freely. You didn't love them independently. But you were dependent upon something to love. And even right now, as you grow, as you grew older, you know, and as, as you began, if you went from that stage of liking to loving, even from that stage of liking to loving, you were still dependent upon the way that person treated you, the way that person loves you. So even right now, you're dependent upon that. You are dependent upon many things. But the glorious truth is God is not dependent upon that. God is not dependent upon our loveliness in order for him to love us. Because saints, we're not lovely. We're sinners in Adam. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And turn there, please, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, really highlights the independency of God's love. It really highlights the independency of God's love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So let's stop there. God calls Israel a people who are chosen by him, who are his treasured possession, And out of all the peoples of the earth, he chose this particular people to be holy unto him. Okay? Look at verse 7. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were fewest out of all the peoples. So it's as if God is saying, you know, I chose you. I love you. But hold on. Pump your brakes. It's not because you were the tightest nation in the land. It's not because, you know, you were the strongest nation in the land. I could have chose anyone else. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. Okay, so that's, that's my explanation. That's the only explanation God needs in order to love. It's because I love you. It's because I love you. And he goes on and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the Lord or from the land, a hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then when you understand this type of love, when you have have an understanding that, that we in Adam were the fewest of all peoples, but God chose to set his eternal, immutable, simple love upon us. Verse 9 says, know therefore that your Lord God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God didn't bring Israel out because they were a lovely people. Israel wasn't a nation that anyone would prize or treasure, but God chose to love them freely and independently. 
Last verse, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It wasn't that the world was lovely or God needed to love the world in order for the world to love him back. The world is not lovely. The world is wicked. The world is ugly. The world is sinful. The world crucified God when he was here. The world in its sin is unlovely, but God loves freely. God loves independently. God doesn't love because he needs love in return. God doesn't depend on a creature to love him back because God has all life and blessedness in and of himself. This is the second aspect of God's love that we must consider, that God's love is independent, that he loved you with a love that is free and independent. It wasn't dependent upon anything that you did because, saints, you couldn't have done nothing to earn that type of love. Let's move on. The third, God's love is simple. God's love is simple. If you remember the doctrine of divine simplicity... It says that God is not made up of material parts or immaterial parts. So God is not made up of body parts like we are or immaterial parts, essence or existence. In other words, there is nothing not God that causes God to be God. All that is in God is God. God is pure being, which means that God doesn't have potential to be something that he currently is not. Right now, I'm an elder. I'm a pastor. I'm preaching the word to you. 8 a.m. tomorrow, I'm a carpet cleaner. I'm no longer an elder. So I have a potential to be something that I currently am not. But God is pure act. God is pure being. He doesn't have the potential to be something that he is not. Divine simplicity also means that God's attributes don't add to God's essence or or. His attributes don't make up who he is, meaning this. If we take love, grace, holiness, justice, put them all together, you got God. That's not how God is made up. God is simple, right? Because if God was made up of those, then that means that he would depend on those to be. God is not made up of the consequence of a multitude of attributes that come together and make him who he is. God is not the result of love, justice, wisdom, and power. What we are saying with regards to divine simplicity is God is all of those attributes. God doesn't have love. He doesn't have mercy. He doesn't have holiness. He is love. He is mercy. He is holiness. God's attributes are identical with his essence. The same can't be said about us. Not all of our attributes are identical to our essence. There's distinctions in my being between my attributes and my essence. Let me give you an example. If I say that Isaiah is wise and loving, I'm only wise and loving in virtue, not of myself, but by those attributes that cause me to be wise and loving. So when I was born, love was not given with my essence. Wisdom was not given with my essence. Those are things that are distinct from my essence. In other words, and hear this, it's in virtue of an, act, of an attribute called love that causes me to love. It's in virtue of something else called love that causes me, that's attributed to me, and causes me to love. I'm not essentially loving. Does that make sense? What we are saying with God is, God is wise. God is loving. That God doesn't love because he has, that God doesn't love because he has, in addition to his essence, a property called love. But God loves in virtue of God. 1 John 4 8 says, God is love. Saints, without divine simplicity, that statement right there, that verse right there is false. Without divine simplicity, God is love is not true. If without divine simplicity, if God's attributes are not identical with his essence, then we can't say that God is love. I'll, I'll get there. 
Um, it is in God's very nature to love. It's in God's very nature to love. And the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches us that God is not only loving. Hear this, saints. God is not only loving, but he is the very love by which he loves. He is that very love that he pours out on his elect. He is that very love, that perfect, unchanging love. And since God's love is identical to his being, then his love cannot be heightened or lessened because his being can't be heightened or lessened. God's love cannot be diminished or taken away because in himself he cannot be diminished or taken away. God's love has no potentiality. It is pure. It is perfect because his essence is pure and perfect. That is why our confession says God is most loving. Most loving. Hear this, saints. God couldn't cease to love his elect. If you are in Christ, there will never be a time when God will stop loving you. Now, that's an amen. That's great. But why? What will happen? God is identical with his attributes. He can no more fail to love than he can fail to be. Hear this. If God ceased from loving us in Christ, then he would cease to be God. Because his very nature is to love. His very nature is to love. Praise God for his love. That if right now he stopped loving us, then he would cease to be all that he is. That's why connecting his attributes with his, with his essence is, is important. <laughs> and we need to, we need to um, clarify that and hit on that. If all that is in God is God, then none of his attributes can change, diminish, or disappear. God is eternal. Everything in him is eternal. God says in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Friends, if God wasn't simple, then Jeremiah 31, 3 wouldn't be true. Nor would God's love be true. If God's attribute, if God's attribute of love wasn't identical to his divine essence, then that statement, as sweet as it may sound and as comforting as it may sound, means nothing. Why? Because that must mean, if God's love is not identical to his being, then that must mean that there once was a time when God wasn't loving. There once was a time when God didn't have this attribute called love. And somewhere in time... He attributed to himself love. The doctrine of divine simplicity upholds those statements that speak about God loving us everlasting. God, God being love. God is love. If divine simplicity isn't true, if, if God's attributes are not identical with his essence, then we can't say that God has loved us, loved us with an everlasting love because his love is not everlasting. His love had a beginning. His love had a start, starting points. Let's move on to our last aspect of God's love, and that is God's love is immutable. God's love is immutable. The doctrine of divine immutability says that God does not change in his being perfections, purposes, or promises. God does not change in his being perfections, purposes, or promises. In other words, God doesn't change. God doesn't change. God change doesn't occur intrinsically in God. Many of you might be, and you've probably done it before when you're younger, even now, you sit in your room and then suddenly you just get, you just get sad. Out of no reason, you just, get, there's a, you just get sad. So there was an intrinsic change that happened within you. Nor can anyone or anything bring change about God. So if you came up here, and I use this analogy a lot, you came up here, you gave me $100, my attitude toward you and my attitude toward the world would change from being, I'm good, to, man, I'm so happy. I got $100. So change can happen intrinsically in us, but also people can bring about change to us. But God is unchanging. And this truth speaks volumes to us when we consider the doctrine of God's love. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, God says to Israel, I have loved you. You can also render this, I love you. Now, you might say, big deal. God's supposed to love. 
But remember, God loves freely, right? God loves independently. But also, within the context of Malachi, he's telling this to an unfaithful people. A people who have lost sight of God's love and mercy and grace. A people who dishonor God in their sacrifices and offerings. A people who no longer think that God is just and working all things together for their good. Sound familiar? Us? A people who constantly are bickering back and forth. A people who fight daily. A people who no longer trust in God. They no longer want God because they don't see benefits coming their way. Their love for God has changed. But here, in the very first chapter, in the very first words, God announces his love to this unfaithful people. He says, my love for you has not changed. Your love for me has changed. But I have not abandoned my love for you. I have not left you as an orphan. But I am still your father. I am still here for your good. He still has a love for them. He's still on their side. And saints, God's love for his elect doesn't change, but remains faithful to the very end. And there is no end. In the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, God reminds and remains faithful to them. And this, saints, this should be a lesson to us as well. Oftentimes, we might feel that God is no longer for our good, that God's love for us has changed. And the reason we, we think that way is because we think that God's love is sort of like an emotional high that we can experience and that we can feel. You've heard it before. I feel the love of God in this place. I feel the presence of God in this face place as if those things are as those things are our feelings and experiences rather the love of god is an objective truth that's rooted in his word that the love of god the love that he has for you saints is not by virtue or in light of who you are but the reason god loves you and the basis of god's love for you is found in the love that he has for himself that's where we find God's love. That's an objective truth that I can hang my hat on. Not the emotional high and experience of somehow thinking that God's love is a feeling that just comes upon me and I get, you know, all giddy. But God's love is an objective truth that's rooted in the love that he has in his triune self. So if God ceased to love you, then he would cease to love himself. But God loves himself to the fullest. He loves himself to the max. Saints, God's love for us doesn't change. But our love is constantly changing, is it not? Husbands, you are constantly changing in your love for your wife. Wives, you're constantly changing your love for your husband. You are constantly changing your love for your managers or for, or for people that come in and, and bug you on, on the, on, uh, in your workforce. We are a people of change. Everyday change occurs intrinsically in us. And every day we allow external things to bring about change in us. Do we not? And none is more evident than the way we love. Our love is constantly on a roller coaster. Constantly on a roller coaster. But thank God his love is nothing like ours. Nothing like ours. His love is simple, infinite, unchanging. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations, Psalms 105. Saints, God doesn't run out of love for his elect. Nor does it diminish at any time. You don't cap off God's love. God has an abundance of love that he's ready and willing to give to any sinner who repents and turns from their sins and turns to the one who washed away sins, Jesus Christ. Malachi 3.6, a familiar verse to us all. God says to unfaithful Israel, For I, the Lord, do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. A statement about his being. 
Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, Israel's love and trust in God has changed. Here in Malachi 3, 6, God reminds them that his love for them hasn't changed. And the evidence that God gives on why his love hasn't changed is you haven't been consumed yet. Saints, you want to know why? Or you want to know the best evidence other than your election of why God loves you right now? It's because you haven't been consumed. It's because you haven't been brought under his wrath. But there is someone who stood in your place as a substitution and took on that wrath on your behalf. Exhausted it. He presented himself to the Father. And the Father vindicated the Son by rising him from the dead. And right now, he's interceding on your behalf. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. The fact that I haven't wiped you out testifies that I don't change. My love and my goodness and my kindness toward you hasn't changed. Saints, if you, if you right now still carry that notion that I don't, feel God, I don't feel that God loves me, why don't you look at yourself first? Because your love for God has changed, not his love for you. God's love for us doesn't change. And that's the great news for us all. His love doesn't change and it's eternal. So in summary, what we have learned is God's love is um, incomprehensible. It's independent. It's simple. And it's unchanging. That's the great gulf that exists between our love and God's love. Between the creature's love and the creator's love. And thank God for that wide gulf and chasm that exists. Now, what's our response? Point two, what's our response? After learning how different God's love is from ours, our only response is to praise and worship this one who is so beyond our comprehension. The fact that God love, because of the fact that God's love is self-sufficient means that he is sufficient enough to even love me in my sinfulness that he is sufficient enough to love me to the max and to the fullest, that even in Adam, his love was set upon me. His love is sufficient enough to look past my impurities, to look past my rebellion and sinfulness in Adam, and not see me in Adam, but see me in Christ. The fact that God chose to love us freely should humble us to the ground, should cause us to adore and worship him. Yes, I know we talk about the love of God often, but saints, this is, this is beyond, and, and I hope that we're taking this to level 10, that we are so unworthy of a love like this, like this. Yes, we can be worthy of love, we can do things, and I can cause you to love me. What can I do to cause God to love me? The fact that God chose to love us should humble us. Out of his good love and will, out of his good will and pleasure, he chose to freely set his love upon us, and that should amaze us. The gospel should amaze us. As simple as it may be, as simple as it may be, being able to explain the gospel is so incomprehensible. The gospel is such a mysterious good news. This should cause us to, to weep. This should cause us to, to go to our knees in thanksgiving. The fact that God is simple tells us that God is the very love by which he loves us. That there's not something out there that causes God to love me. But God intrinsically, in his being, in his nature, loves me. And that love is a perfect love. A undiminished love. A love that cannot be heightened or be taken away. God does not depend on an attribute called love to love us. He is love. He is the very perfection of what love is. He is Love, when you take away all of the sinfulness, all of those impurities, 
And what you see is that perfect image of our Lord Jesus Christ who came down from his heavenly throne to become like his own, to live, die, and rise, to save us, to rise for our justification. That's what we see when we scrub away all of those impurities of love. You see Christ. You see what he has done on our behalf. This should cause us to respond in love for him. This should cause us to want to obey his law. What is our response to this love? We delight in his law day and night. We cherish his law. We want to obey his law. We should thank God for his unchanging love. A love that that began in eternity past. And saints, it will extend all the way to eternity future. What is eternity? I don't know. But I know that God has loved me from that time. And praise God for that. A love that didn't begin. A love that didn't begin in the garden. A love didn't begin when God said, let there be light. But a love that began in eternity past. And in eternity past, God loved himself so much that he chose to create those who would love him the same. In Christ, he gave us to his son to be what? Love gifts. To be love gifts. To be love gifts. God's love for us in Christ will never depart from us. He doesn't love us one day. He doesn't hate us the next. He's not alfalfa. He's not up there holding a flower. Isaiah loves me. Isaiah loves me not. He's not worshiping me today. He, does, he doesn't love me. Oh, he's reading his word today. He loves me. His love for us is not dependent upon anything that we do. It's an eternal love. It's an independent love. It's a free love. A love that the world wants so badly. A love that the world searches for. A love that causes people to create profiles on eHarmony and Match.com. They want to find this perfect love, but they can only find it in Jesus Christ. He is the Lord that does not change. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Lights change every single day and you have to change them out. Lights grow dim. God's light stays bright and it will for all eternity. James 1.17. Since God's love doesn't change, then that should cause our love for him to never change. Since God's love for us doesn't change, then that should cause our love for God to never diminish. We all are looking for love, and we have found it in Christ. Why would you run away from that love? The one thing that we all search for, we have In Christ, a treasured possession. But how often do we turn away from that love and turn to things that are less loving? Turn to things that do love us, but only for a short time. Turn to things that do love us, but it's not eternal. As C.S. Lewis said, it's like making mud pies in the slums. Because you can't imagine a holiday at the sea. God's love is so beyond our comprehension. Saints, if you do not understand that, if you have lost that, let that seep deep down into your head, deep down into the marrow of your bones, into the very fibers of who you are. Let it penetrate your heart and seep deep down into your soul. That God is, His love is so beyond, it's so grand, and we do not deserve it. Our friends will let us down. Our families will let us down. Our jobs will let us down. God remains faithful. Why does he remain faithful? Because he cannot deny himself. He is faithful. His essence is identical to his attributes. 
His love will remain for us with us forever. Saints, after all of that, this is incomprehensible. I throw out my hands, and I don't know what to say beyond this. This is indeed a mystery. Let us ask like Spurgeon every single day, Oh, why such a love to me? Why? And that will be a question for us for all eternity. When we get to heaven, why? Why such love to me? Saints, never get tired of asking that question. Never stop marveling at that question. Never allow that question to become old or stale to your emotions. Let that always penetrate your hearts and cause you to well up inside that God's love is beyond us. His love is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. And saints, that truth should cause us to evermore desire to know who this God is, to know the depths and the heights of this perfect love. Yes, we cannot comprehend it, but we can apprehend it. We can apprehend it. And the way we do that is by looking at the cross where God shows and he highlights that very love that he has for us. He displays it. As one theologian said, at the cross, God preaches from the pulpit his love for his elect. Don't ever get tired of asking that question. Saints, I end this lesson reciting the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian Christians, and we've already looked at this But saints, this is my prayer to you, and I hope that this is your prayer to each other and for yourselves. I pray that out of all the riches of his glory, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with the saints to comprehend the length, the width, the height and the depth of his love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray.